Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. My name is Stephen, and uh, we are continuing in on our summer series on the arts and the practice of hospitality. And in that spirit, I want to kind of uh, give us a little bit of a taste of a practice of that by inviting you to foster a little bit of interaction. Are you ready for that? Okay. What I'd like you to do, if you'd indulge me for just a moment, is turn to your neighbor and answer the following question. When it comes to hospitality, do you prefer to be the guest or the host and why? All right, ready? One, two, three, go. Okay, okay. How many of you, by show of hands, prefer to be the guest? Oh, it's a, a lot more here in, in this room than in the, uh, than in the last service. Uh, and maybe, maybe that, you know, there's some, some fear and this is a safe space. And maybe that's because if it was up to you, dinner might look like that. And, but, you know, in that situation, this is a place of grace. So you just tell your guest it's Cajun style, all will be forgiven. And how many of you then prefer to be the host? Okay, now, are you the kind of people who, you know, who do that because it needs to look like this? Everything's got to be perfect and, and just right. Well, that's okay. Uh, either way, you know, I think in the popular imagination, our idea of hospitality owes more to like Magnolia, uh, you know, or to uh, magazines like Kinfolk. You know, uh, if you're familiar with that, it's a magazine that claims to be Uh, founded in Portland, established in Copenhagen with roots in Japan, which I think is just a pretentious way of saying, uh, you know, dinner parties for people who, uh, you know, throw things that only models are invited or whatever, you know, the kind of people who are all dressed in white linen and they wear makeup, but you don't know if they're wearing makeup is just enough to say, I'm sophisticated, but I'm also down to earth, that kind of thing. Well, I suspect with most of you, it's simply the joy of being with others that is the whole heart of it. And regardless of whether you are the guest or the host, receiving others, particularly over a meal, is a time when hospitality is on full display. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to another story where Jesus comes to dinner. But we find in the story that it isn't the food or the preparations that make or break hospitality. It is, in fact, the posture of the host. We are in the gospel according to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. It's a familiar story when Jesus comes and has a meal with two sisters. Mary, who shows her love with the gift of her presence, and Martha, who shows her love with the gift of her preparations. Now they both recognize that Jesus is Lord, but only one really is praised for grasping what that means. So let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, 
He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord replied. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would come upon us in our hearing, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers. In the gift of your presence, may we receive your hospitality offered to us in Jesus so that we may extend your grace to others. We ask this in the name of the one who is our host, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I wonder when was the last time you really received hospitality? When somebody created the space for you to be you, the real you, without any sort of pretense, without any sort of disguise, in 2016, there was an interview with uh, Chancellor Jonathan Bennett, better known as Chance the Rapper. Uh, he was asked about the joy that comes through his music, this, this kind of unshakable optimism in a time when there is a whole lot of cynicism going on in the world. And, you know, it, it's not this kind of blind, head-in-the-sand kind of joy. It's the kind of joy that comes out of, you know, some really hard circumstances growing up in the south side of Chicago. And he told a story in this interview that he said, I haven't told this to anyone. It was a day that his grandmother said a prayer over him that opened up his eyes. It was just after he had released Acid Rap, this record that kind of put him on the map. And the uh, album's title owes its, its, uh, itself to the acid jazz of the 1970s. But he said it also is because I wrote a lot of the record while I was on acid. I uh, was just doing a lot of drugs at the time, he said. And he would come to his grandma's house and he would be there, but like his mind was just, you know, just mentally gone, just, just vacant. And then one day, on these weekly visits that he made to his grandma's house since he was a kid, he went over and she took him aside and she held his face, uh, held his face in her hands and she looked at him and she said this. She said, she looked at me in the eyes and she said, I don't like what's going on. She said, I can see it in your eyes. I don't like this. And she says, we're going to pray. And she prayed for me all the time, like very positive things. But this time she said, Lord, I pray that all the things that are not like you, you take away from chance. Make sure that he fails at everything that is not like you. Take it away, turn it to dust. And at first he was like, whoa, that sounds like a curse, not like a prayer. But it didn't take too long for him to see this as a benediction. It became this kind of turning point in his life, what the Gospels describe as a moment of metanoia, of reorientation of life or repentance in more classical language. He decided that everything he did from that movement, uh, that moment going forward was going to be with God in the midst of it. And he said, that is where my joy comes from in my music. 
He went on to write a song, a gospel hymn called Sunday Candy about these experiences growing up, going to his grandma's house on Sundays and the hospitality that she showed him all those years. And it's a kind of a call and response where he sings a few bars and then a gospel singer takes on the role of his grandmother and sings her lines to him. And in his lines, he talks about how going to her house was synonymous with going to church. Uh, Not only because she would bring him to church on those Sunday mornings, but because when she sat, when he sat in her home, in her presence, it was like a sanctuary. And he describes this peppermint candies in sacramental language, this idea of of being with her and, and what she meant. It's something that absolutely changed his life. And then during the chorus of the song, told from the perspective of his grandmother, it goes like this. You gotta move slowly. Take and eat my body like it's holy. I've been waiting for you the whole week. I've been praying for you. You're my Sunday candy. And then the choir comes in with, come on in this house, because it's going to rain. Rain down Zion. It's going to rain. Through her hospitality, Chance's grandmother created a space for him to experience the grace of God. And in that way, it allowed him to kind of reclaim that image of God that he had lost in himself, that he could in turn be who he really was. And when you experience that kind of hospitality, you see what a gift it actually is. And so week in, week out, Sunday afternoons at his grandma's house, they became this kind of little cathedral in time. And week in, week out, it began to kind of change him slowly See, so often when we think about hospitality, we think you know, about giving people what they want, but hospitality is so much more than just giving people what we think they want. It's about creating a space for the Spirit to work at them, to give the gift of presence, to give the best of yourself so that they can actually do the same. And we see kind of a, a picture of this in this morning's scripture passage, this idea of what giving and receiving and making that space looks like. Usually when we think about hospitality in this story, we think about Martha, right? The one who is making sure that everything is just so. The one who is opening up her home and working to make sure that everything is just right. And we can relate to that. I think a lot of us. We can relate to Martha's frustration in this story. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Mary is just there casually chatting it up with Jesus while she is working herself to the bone. It's kind of like that time in your sophomore year, your lab partner cozies up to the teacher the whole time and then just comes around at the end to collect the grade, leaving you to do all the work. I'm not bitter about it, Kathleen Proctor. <laughs> I'm not bitter about it at all. And so we tend to think, you know, that this, this is a story about pitting service against listening or pitting action against contemplation. But actually, hospitality is one of the spaces where these two seemingly opposite poles come together, where we receive the gift of God's grace given to us, and then we extend it out in showing that grace to each other. And the question is, what does it look like to create that kind of space? What is the posture of this kind of hospitality? And we've noted all throughout this series that that, you know, requires a little bit of a mindset shift away from thinking about what it is that we provide as the host and to think about more about what the presence of the guest brings into the mix. 
What is Jesus' priority every time he enters into somebody's house? You see, we don't really know actually what Martha is up to. The story is pretty light on the details. We know that she is furiously at work. We know that she is distracted. But we actually don't know what she's doing. We just know that she is kind of providing the kind of hospitality that actually reflects a pretty keen understanding of who Jesus is. She calls him Lord and she treats him accordingly. She's trying to make a meal fit for a king. But we also don't know what Jesus is talking about with Mary. We do know that whatever it is, Mary is here for it. She is fully attentive to it. She is fully attentive to him. And you notice that Jesus does not actually have anything to say about this division of labor until Martha comes in to lodge a formal complaint. She wants to remind Mary, and actually she wants Jesus to remind Mary, that her role is in the kitchen, not in the parlor. And to get that, we have to know a little bit about first century background, that in the Palestinian culture of the time, that was the norm. Men did the discussion, Women did the preparation. And that is exactly where Jesus comes in to add a little bit of perspective to the things. He says, actually, it is Mary and not Martha who understands the heart of hospitality. And let me be clear, it's not that Jesus doesn't appreciate what Martha is up to. Uh, Jesus is there as a guest. There is a meal that needs to be prepared. He's not mad about that at all. The problem isn't so much that Martha goes to great lengths It's that she doesn't see that what Mary is doing is actually what Jesus came to do in the first place. You see, Martha sees Jesus as a guest who deserves to be served fine food. But Mary actually sees Jesus as the fullness of God's feast, the bread of heaven that alone can give life. And she has come to the table hungry. And so it's Martha in in, in her thoughts, she's preoccupied and it keeps her from being attentive to the gift of grace that is right in front of her the whole time. And so despite, you know, Martha's preparing a feast that is worthy of a king, it is actually Mary who ends up being the one who creates the space for Jesus to be Lord. You see, she knows that Jesus hasn't just come in town to eat a nice dinner Jesus has come in town to proclaim a message of the kingdom of God, to invite people into a whole life reorientation so they can live in the fullness of that kingdom. And so it's actually Mary who receives that gift that Jesus has come to bring with the gift of her presence. She chooses to to receive him with the gift of her hearing what it is that he has come to say. And so I wonder, is it possible that Jesus experienced Mary's presence as a finer act of hospitality than all of Martha's performance. You see, Martha's problem isn't that she, didn't, isn't that she wanted to be a good host. That's not her problem at all. It's that in her distraction, she failed to see that she had a ticket to the best meal in town. And I can't help but wonder if that isn't our problem as well. 
One of the pitfalls that comes with thinking about hospitality in our culture is it's so easy for us to kind of get worked up and carried away in the tasks of the day, the, the meals that need to be made, the dishes that need to be done, to create an environment that reflects well on us, making sure that everything is just right. And all of that can get in the way of fully appreciating each other. We choose performance over presence all the time. Or as Pete Scazzaro is fond of saying in the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series, we choose our doing over our being all the time. And we're so focused on making sure that all the details are taken care of that we lose sight of what it means to actually receive others. And sometimes, I know people can take on the role of the host as a way of kind of creating some distance so they don't actually have to be fully present with others. They're so distracted with the doing that they don't have to really sit there and be attentive. And the thing is, if Martha can do this with Jesus in her home, I mean, how much easier is it for us to do that with each other, right? This is why the pastor and writer Marjorie Thompson says that our first act of hospitality is simply to receive what God gives. That every expression of trust, praise, and joy delights our God. Gratitude expands our hearts, creating more space for God and for others. We receive the gift of God's grace in Jesus. And one of the best ways that we receive God's gifts is receiving each other as Jesus. You know, all throughout history, the earliest Christian communities, they placed a premium value on hospitality. It was seen as one of the the greatest marks of the Christian community is the way that they welcomed strangers and outsiders in. And the sixth century rule of St. Benedict captures this really well. It says that all guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. For he himself will say, I was a stranger to you and you welcomed me. Proper honor must be showed to all. And so what is it, you know, whenever it is that we get so distracted and preoccupied with making everything just right or, or with all the things that reflect well on us, we actually rob ourselves of receiving the other as if we were receiving Jesus. Jesus says, when you receive the other as you receive me, you are in fact receiving me. But on the other hand, when we allow ourselves to delight in the gifts of what the other brings, well, that's when we actually create space for the Spirit to work. And oftentimes, the first work of the Spirit in those places is to transform us. And how we can see the gift of the others, removing the blinders from our own eyes. And so I can't help but wonder if what it would look like for us to see our homes, our apartments, our our, our courtyards, our, our backyards, our front porches as places that are a sanctuary where we can welcome each other. A place where the spirit can be present. Is it possible to provide both Mary's hospitality of presence and Martha's hospitality in preparation. Well, maybe the best description I know of that is from a short story by uh, the writer Karen Blixen called Babette's Feast. Uh, It was made into a, a major motion picture a while back, won all kinds of awards. 
But the story centers on these two sisters in this pious uh, but stern Lutheran village out on the edge of Denmark in the 19th century. Stick with me on this for just a second. Now the surrounding countryside where these sisters live is rocky and gray and lifeless and that is reflected perfectly in the worship of the church to which they belong. Everything there is kind of, you know, gray and the the members of this little religious order are, are taught to renounce the pleasures of the life so that they may more fully contemplate the joys of heaven. And what started out is this, you know, kind of idealistic experiment in Christian community. The, the, the father of these two sisters was the uh, pastor of this, this community. He was a much beloved guy. And what started out as this really noble experiment in Christian community and this life of, of service and, and charity gradually became kind of a closed off and joyless mess that held up a vision of salvation that nobody wanted. And while their acts of service, while their acts of love and kindness are always appreciated in the community, it's just the joylessness that seeps into everything they do, doesn't really attract anybody into their new fellowship. And so this little group of followers, they, they just kind of start to dwindle and, and people leave and people die out and nobody kind of comes in to replace them. And all the little pettinesses and, and grievances that build up in this community as they get smaller, they, they just start to become the kind of way of life that people, you know, do life together. Now, in, in their youth, these two sisters were renowned for their beauty. They had suitors from everywhere, uh, but they thought of their beauty also as a distraction. And so they kind of you know, pushed aside all of those suitors. And then when their father dies, rather than marry, they decide that they are going to double down on this life. They're going to care for this little flock of his disciples that are remaining. And they're going to recommit themselves to this really kind of hard life of charity and piety, looking after the dwindling band of the members. And so they, they kind of take on this, this tiresome and hard life. They sing the same old songs. They eat the same bland meal day in and day out. And then one day, a stranger comes to town. Babette is a refugee from the Franco-Prussian War, and the sisters welcome her into their home. They employ her as a housekeeper. And Babette's thoughts and hearts the whole time are in France. But her only connection there is through a lottery ticket that she keeps renewed through a friend year after year. And as the years go by, and as her, her money runs out, and the thought of her being able to return grows slimmer and slimmer, she just kind of throws herself into working in this village, carrying on in the ministry with these two sisters. But the whole time she does it, Babette comes as an outsider, and so she doesn't know all the rules and the, the flavor of that. And the first time she sits down to prepare them a meal, the sisters intervene, they throw out all the spices and say, no, 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 the Lord commanded us not to take any thought of our food. And so they eat same boiled bread pudding and boiled fish every day for 15 years. They have no idea that in their midst is Babette, who was once the fabled chef of the Café Anglais in Paris, where royalty dined. So all this time goes by. Meanwhile, their congregation gets smaller. They get older. They get crabbier. Past injuries cast a long shadow, past sins keep driving little wedges in people. They gather in church to sing the hymns. They take little joy in the hymns. They take no joy in each other. 
And though you can kind of sympathize as a reader with this small group, individually they're all, they're all good people, but you can see very clearly there's something missing in their faith. It's very obvious. In the midst of all of their doing for God, they don't even know how to see each other. And so the sisters get to thinking, and they, they hope to heal the, the, the community's wounds somehow. They see what's going on, and so they have this idea that they're going to throw a celebration, a modest celebration, mind you, on the occasion of what would have been their father's 100th birthday. And as the date of this celebration approaches, Babette receives the improbable word that she has won the lottery, and 10,000 francs are coming her way. And as she thinks about what she's going to do with her winnings, she asks the sisters if she might just this once prepare for them a real French dinner. And the sisters at first, they're, they're hesitant. They say, they say no, but they love Babette. And they know that with her winning, she's going to go back to France and they're going to lose her. And so they're like, just this once, we will let you use your gifts. But they kind of convene a meeting in secret away from Babette and they say, all right, everybody, we're going we're gonna to have this meal, but we have to promise not to enjoy it. Because, <laughs> you know, after all, God is not going to blame them if they enjoy this decadent feast if they don't take pleasure in it at all. So Babette gets to work. She orders the food, and before too long, wheels of cheese and, and, and cages of quail and barrels of wine start arriving in this little village by this shipload, and finally the day comes where the congregation gathers, and though she prepares this meal that is absolutely fit for royalty, their faces are stony. They sit in silence, and they dip their spoons in the first course, carefully concealing any impulse toward enjoyment. Something's different. Usually they sit in silence, but then conversation starts to sparkle up. And then comes the wine, the best vintage in all of France, and suddenly the atmosphere changes. It's like a, a black and white movie kind of slowly bleeding into color. They, they, they come to life as they delight in this meal. They find muscles in their faces they didn't know they had. They start to smile and they start to, to giggle. They start to laugh. Somebody throws an arm around somebody else and says, well, after all, didn't our Lord Jesus say that we are to love one another? And by the time the main course comes of quail paired with pinar, pinot noir, it comes these stern Pleasure-forsaking people are laughing. They're, they're hugging each other. They're praising God for their, their life of fellowship together. They're shedding tears of repentance over all of the ways that they have wasted time together, squabbling in these broken friendships. And their stony hearts get transformed into a loving community all through the gift of love that Babette poured into this meal. And so in a sense, Babette is like Martha pouring her heart into her preparations. But she also knows that the meal is not the thing. Her hospitality creates a space for community, for joy, for life, for this hardened group of people to become who they really are. But she's also like Mary, who gives herself completely and, and delights in the joy and the presence of others and the, the joy that the diners begin to experience as, as they become completely themselves. She is thinking about what the guests need, not just what she can provide. 
And at the end of the meal, this community is completely transformed. The, the two sisters, they rush into the kitchen to thank Babette, saying, Oh, how we will miss you when you return to Paris. And Babette replies, Oh, I will not be returning to Paris. I have no money. I spent it all on the meal. And that's when we see that Babette is really like Jesus. She came as a guest, but she poured herself out to bring reconciliation and joy And suddenly these sisters see that what they did in this small act of hospitality, they received something far greater than what they could ever provide. They had no idea how beautiful the gift was until they allowed that gift to be used on its terms and not theirs. Friends, there's something holy about coming together about creating space for the Spirit to work, for people to become more fully who they are. And in becoming more fully who they are, rooted in Christ, they reflect the image of the God whose image they bear. And the point of our hospitality is not ever to change people, but through creating this gift of space, what happens is that we get to see the Spirit do this work of transformation. And sometimes that looks like Sunday's at grandma's house over peppermint candies and a prayer that everything that does not reflect God will fall away and crumble to dust. Sometimes that's enjoying each other and enjoying even an elaborate meal that opens us up to the extravagance of God's grace to us. But the true feast is not ever so much about the food and drink as it is about cherishing each other. And in cherishing each other, we come to cherish the Lord of the feast. You see, this table is a metaphor for how God has received us in poured out cup and in broken bread. God has poured himself into this meal, giving us the best of himself so that we may go out and carry the best of ourselves out into a weary world. This is God's hospitality to us. It's giving the best of who he is so that we can go and give the best of who we are. May it be so. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have prepared a feast for us and your hand has given us everything that we possess. We ask that you would let us to remember in all the ways that we Strive to provide hospitality that your grace has moved before and precedes everything that we do. So let us be attentive to the space that you are creating. God, we ask that you would bless the preparations as we open up our homes. Bless the the conversations, bless the dirty dishes, bless the linens that need to be washed. Because at the end of the day, Lord Jesus, we pray that in all of these things, it was you that was received by our hospitality. We pray this in your name. Amen.